At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God, open it up, and open it up to 1 Corinthians the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. If you're relatively new to the Bible, if you can find the Gospels, then you next have the book of Acts, then the book of Romans, then the book of 1 Corinthians. And we want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. This morning, we are launching a new series of messages that we have entitled, The Power of Love. And we're gonna be looking at 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 to 7. Now, there are some people who have identified this chapter as the finest chapter in Scripture. There are people who say it is the most beautiful passage in the New Testament. And in particular, they're talking about verses 4 to 7, where it says, Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. This is a passage of Scripture that is very popularly quoted and recited. This passage of Scripture has been the focus of calligraphy and a lot of different artwork that that has been done. And frequently, this passage of Scripture is a core element in a wedding ceremony. So how many people either have been to a wedding that had it recited or you had it in your own wedding? So let me see some hands out there. See, there's a great number of us. So this is a passage that has come before us many times. We could call it the love passage of the New Testament. And you know what's interesting? When you start talking about love, uh, there is a very, when you look at our culture, a very shallow and superficial understanding of love. And you can see this shallow, superficial understanding of love reflected in many of the novels that are out there and many of the movies that are out there and also, yes, in many of the songs that are out there. I just want to think about that idea of songs and the concept of love, and I want to highlight some of the classic songs from our culture that talk about love. The first one, 1965, a song written by Hal David and Burke Bacharach, sung by Jackie DeShannon, and that song is the song, What the World Needs Now. And part of the lyrics of that song goes this way. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing there's just too little of not just for some, but for everyone, a song about love. Most people don't know that that was actually a protest song written in 1965, protesting the Vietnam War. But that's a song of love that's sort of classic that's out there. There's another song of love I want us to remember. It is a song that was written by John Lennon in 1967 and sung by the Beatles, And that is what song? All you need is love. Exactly. All you need is love. And in the song, it talks about love is all you need. 
Love is all you need. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. 30, I counted this 36 times. Love is all you need. And then I, I counted in the word love appears in that song 98 times. 98 times. But you know what's interesting about that song? We are left with a hanging question. And the question is, what is love? I mean, all you need is love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. What is it? We're left hanging. That's never answered in that song at all. And then another classic song in our culture comes from 1955 from a movie of the same name. And that is the song, Love is a Many-Splendored Thing. You know, just that phrase, love is a many-splendored thing. You know, later on, that became the title of a TV soap opera. And I think the kind of love they were talking about was a, a little different kind of love than we're going to be examining as we go through Scripture. You know, what's interesting about this, love is one of the most prominent words in the English language And yet, interestingly enough, it's maybe one of the most misunderstood words in the English language. And like every arena of life, we need divine perspective about love. We need God to open up this concept to us. You know, there's a very simple statement made in 1 John 4, 8, and here's what it says, God is love. God is love. Now, look at that statement for a moment. Don't answer out loud, but what does that really mean? God is love. Well, I I think what it means in part is that love is a core aspect of God's character. Love is who he is. He is, God is love, a perfect example of true love. God is love. So if we want to learn about the true nature of love, what should we do? We should listen to him. We should learn from him. So as we launch this series that we have entitled The Power of Love, let's do that very thing. Let's listen to him and let's learn from him. So if you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I want to read verses 1 to 7 and invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read these verses. Paul is writing these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know, when we lay this passage before us, when we, when we hear as a group, I think, that we're going to be participating and looking particularly at verses 4 to 7 over several weeks, I think some of us, and I know I can struggle with this too, we're thinking, yeah, I, you know, that's, that's a pretty part of Scripture. Uh, yeah, I, I, I know I've heard that, you know, 4 to 7, verses 4 to 7 at weddings. And I think sometimes on the interior, we're thinking, yeah, I know that. You know, love is kind, love is patient, love is not arrogant. Yeah, I, I know that, I know that. And I think if we're really honest, sometimes I think we are so familiar with these verses that we sort of tune out just a little bit. You know, we, we have to stifle a subtle spiritual yawn. I mean, couldn't Bruce have taken us to something new? We're going back to a passage that we're so familiar with? You know, the reality is, I need to hear from God on this subject. I think all of us need to hear from God on this subject. I think all of us need to be reminded of what this is talking about. And thus, we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. Now, as you look at this passage, you can divide it really into two sections. In the first three verses... He wants to talk about the indispensability of love. And then in verses 4 to 7, which we're maybe most familiar with, he wants to unpack the character of love. He's going to give us an in-depth description of the character of love. Now, we're anxious to get here. But before we get to verses 4 to 7, I want us all to take out our Bible study hats. Are you ready to do that? Take your Bible study hat, put it on. Because before we get to verses 4 to 7, we want to answer the question, why is this even here in 1 Corinthians? I mean, something's happening here. What's the context of this discussion about love? which leads us to really today's plan, what we're going to do today. First of all, we're going to look at the spiritual backdrop of this. There's something going on. We're going to take a look at it. And then the second thing we're going to do today is we're going to look at verses 1 to 3 and the indispensability of love. So that's our plan. Sound like a good plan? Shall we do it? All right, let's start off by looking at the spiritual backdrop of this section of verses. Now, before we actually get into looking at the verses in particular, I want to share with you a quote that comes from Gene Getz. And this is a great quote. It's a great summary. And here's what he says. Satan's greatest attack throughout church history from New Testament times until today. So think about that. Satan's greatest attack, I really believe this is true, throughout church history from New Testament times until today has been what? Has been to sidetrack Christians onto peripheral 
issues resulting in creating disunity, bickering, selfishness, and pride. That is very, very true. The greatest attack from New Testament times until today has been to sidetrack Christians onto peripheral issues, the result being there is disunity, bickering, selfishness, and pride. I want you to know that describes the church at Corinth. And that describes something that we must guard against. We must guard against it. And you know, when you look at the Corinthian church, they were a troubled church family. They truly were. And if you go all the way back to the first chapter, he basically is starting to write to them, and he says to these believers, he says, you are blessed. You have embraced the message of the cross. You have embraced salvation in Christ. You are recipients of the grace of God, and God has gifted you to minister to one another and to minister to other people. And he writes in that first chapter and he says, your eternal destiny is secure. But in many ways, they were spiritually out of whack. Spiritually out of whack. Uh, For example, they struggled with spiritual pride and arrogance expressed in that they would be spiritually bragging around the popular spiritual leaders of the day. In fact, in chapter number one and in verse 12, he says, some of you are running around and you're saying, I am a follower of Paul. I am a Paulite. And then there were others running around saying, well, you know, Paul, and as Mark took us through 2 Corinthians, you know, he wasn't that impressive as a speaker. Other people say, well, Okay, Paul, but I am an Apollosite. There's a guy who really can speak in a powerful way. And then other people were running around in the church and they were going, no, no, no. See, those guys aren't even one of the original 12. I am a Peterite. That's who I am. And you know, we can do much the same today. You have people running around and they'll say, well, I'm an R.C. Sprolite, or I'm a Tony Evansite or I'm a John MacArthurite. And as this was going on in the church, the most spiritual among them was going, excuse me, but I am a Christite. I just wish you were as spiritual as me. That's part of what was going on in the church. It doesn't mean you cannot have a favorite spiritual teacher or leader that doesn't mean we should be dividing ourselves into subgroups, looking at one another pridefully. If you were really spiritual, you would be doing what I'm doing. No, no, no. If you're really spiritual, you'd be doing what I'm doing. Maybe it's a church that was spiritually out of whack. We learn in in chapter three, he says to them, you're acting like spiritual babies. Grow up, would you? Grow up. And then in chapter four, he says to them, you, have view, you are viewing yourselves as having arrived spiritually. You think you're there. And he includes there one of my favorite verses of all time, which is 1 Corinthians chapter four, verse seven. He, what do you have that you have not received? And of course, the answer always is utterly nothing. Everything is a gift from God. 
Well, what are you boasting about then? What are you boasting about? In chapter 7, he points out that they had significant marriage issues. Yes, these issues of their attitudes and their actions were infecting their marriage relationships. In chapters 8 and 9, he says that they were having conflicts over Christian liberty. What do I mean by Christian liberty? I mean arenas where the Scripture does not directly address it, but people develop ideas, and then they think that's the spiritual way to think. And they were flaunting their convictions, and they were looking down on other people inside of the church. And then we come to chapter 12, and he begins to address this whole idea of spiritual gifts. And in particular, in chapter 12, he starts talking about how they were proud of their spiritual gifts. See, what happens with the Corinthians was this. They looked at some of the gifts as being superior gifts. And in particular, the one that they were really impressed with was speaking in tongues, which could easily be translated speaking in in languages, which would be a pretty cool thing to speak in an unlearned language that seems pretty powerful and spiritual. And they were more into something that was superior looking, more spectacular appearing. And they began to think, you know, I speak in this unlearned foreign language. Sorry, you don't. I'm a little more spiritual than you. And they were delegitimizing other spiritual gifts. Now, when you look at chapter 12, basically the thrust is, for them to understand, wait a second, you have to to understand this. You are a spiritual body together. There's many members of the body, and the members have different functions, but every role is important. Why would you say speaking in an unlearned foreign language is superior to everything else? Every role is important. That's true in the church. Always has been true, always will be true. Every role is important. And then he comes to chapter 14. And part of the thrust of chapter 14 is he says, your problem, here's the basic core problem you're having, is that you are self-oriented. Now, I know there's nobody here today that's self-oriented or tempted to be self-oriented, but theoretically, let's assume maybe somebody might be like that, right? He says, you are self-oriented. You're focused on building up yourself, you, you suffer from self-focus. That's a problem, by the way, in marriage, if you have two people focusing on self-focus. He's saying you're, you're not to be focusing on yourself. Rather, what you are to be doing is building up others. It's a, it's a huge thrust in chapter 14. Over and over, he says this. He, he says in verse 3, it's about their Upbuilding. The New American Standard, I think, uses the word edification. Edification just means to build up. You have to remember, he says, it's about their upbuilding, their encouragement. In verse 5, he says, it's all about the church being built up. In verse 12, he says to them, strive to excel in building up the church. And then in verse 26 of chapter 14, let all things be done for building up. It's about others, not about yourself. So in the midst of this discussion of chapter 12 and chapter 14, he decides to do a little detour. 
you look at the last part of verse 31 in chapter 12. He says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. I want to show you a still more excellent way than focusing on yourself. And that is learning to relate in the right way to other people. Really, what he was saying to them is you don't know what love really looks like. You truly don't know what love looks like. So that's just a little bit of the background of things. That's just the spiritual backdrop to what we're going to be looking at. And we want to move this morning into examining verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13 when we're going to look at the indispensability of love. Now, I want you to know that as he gets ready to share this with the church at Corinth, it was a little bit like he dropped a spiritual nuclear bomb into their fellowship. He basically wants to stress to them that there's one key essential if you want to be fruitful in your Christian life. He's saying to them, if you miss this, you have missed the core of it all. And what he's going to introduce them to would be spiritual mathematics. You like mathematics? Well, he's going to give us some spiritual mathematics. Here's the formula that he lays before them and before us today. Everything minus love equals what? What did did you say? Nothing. Everything minus love equals nothing. That's the spiritual mathematics that he lays before them and before us. And so here's what I want you to do as we move into verses 1 to 3. I want you to hold on to your hats because we're going to be looking at progressive hyperbole in these next verses. Hyperbole is when you exaggerate something in order to make a point. And we're going to see progressive hyperbole employed by Paul here. And so the first thing he's going to say is that exalted eloquence without love equals, what's the word? I'm sorry, what's the word? Nothing, exactly. It means that exalted eloquence without love is nothing. We are a spiritual zero without love. Look at verse 1. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What's he talking about here? Well, if I speak in the... We'll just translate it the way it probably should be translated. If I speak in the languages of men, you know, plural, the implication is if I could speak in this hyperbole, if I could speak in all the languages of the world, every one of them, and if I could speak in the languages of men all across the globe, and if I could speak in the languages of angels... Now, historically, some in the Christian world have looked at that statement about speaking in the languages of angels, and they go, now we know, we always wondered exactly what would this practice of speaking in tongues be. And it tells us here, right here, that speaking in tongues is speaking in a heavenly language. And if Paul were here, he would go, no, 
That's not what I'm saying. He's using progressive hyperbole. He is taking things to the extreme. He's saying, if I could speak in all the languages of the planet, and if I could even gab with the angel Gabriel in heaven, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You know, when I was working my way through this passage again, and I came across that little phrase, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, my mind immediately went to a Saturday Night Live skit that was starring Christopher Walken and Will Ferrell. If you've never seen that, go to YouTube and put in more cowbell SNL, and it will come up. But what's happening in that is Christopher Walken's playing this character where he's like this music guru who knows how to put songs together. And Will Ferrell is part of the band and they're getting ready to record a musical number. And Will Ferrell has this cowbell and he's going bonk, 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 bonk with a cowbell. And it starts to irritate the band members and then they stop the recording and they ask Christopher Walken to come back out. And he goes, no, I like that. I'd like to hear more cowbell. And so they go to the next thing, and he's, he's bang, boom, 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 you know, bumping into the other band members and getting right next to their face, boom, 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 boom. And then finally they interrupt it again, and Christopher Walken comes out, and they, they're saying, Wait, this is nuts. This is driving us all crazy. And he goes, hey, I want you to know, I've got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. You know, what, what an interesting picture that is. That's what I think of when he says, if I can speak with all the languages of men and even can gab with Gabriel, but I don't have love, I'm boom, 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 boom. You know, it's who needs boom, boom, boom right in your face? It's nothing. It's basically empty. The second thing he starts talking about is ultimate knowledge in verse 2. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and then he wants to talk about boundless faith. How about boundless faith or super faith? He says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, you know, if I have such faith that I could speak to the rocky mountain range, and say, move to central Oklahoma so that Vail would just be a short drive away. And if I could pull that off, what would that mean? See the progressive hyperbole. He says, without love, it'd be nothing. Be a spiritual zero. Fourth thing he brings up is the idea of total generosity in verse 3. Look at verse three there. If I give away all that I have, you know, if, if I'm not giving 10%, I'm not giving 20%, I'm not giving 50%, I'm not giving 90%, but I'm giving 100% all the time. And then he talks about the practice of outright martyrdom in verse three. If I deliver up my body, to be burned. You know, um, I think part of the spirit behind this one is it's, it's a lot like social media. 
Um, you know what social media is like for most of us. I mean, social media really spends a lot of time where people are saying, look at me. Did you notice what I'm doing? You know, implication, don't you just wish you were me? Look at me, look at me. And that's part of what the spirit is here. If someone chooses to even be a martyr, the idea that, hey, look at me, look at what I did. I gave up my life. But notice he goes on to say at the end of the verse, but have not love. I gain, what does it say? I gain nothing. I'm a spiritual zero. And what is the spiritual mathematics formula? Say it with me. Everything minus love equals nothing. That is the formula. You know what I think is going on here? I think there's an unspoken question behind all of his comments. And the unspoken question is this. What does it mean to be spiritual? What does it really mean to be spiritual? And the message he is trying to communicate is that the spiritual life in any dimension without love is fruitless. It's fruitless. Now let me ask you this question. Why does he throw this stuff out there? I mean, why? What's the thrust and the goal of verses 1, 2, and 3? What's he trying to get done? Well, I think what he is wanting the Corinthians to do and what he's wanting us to do is to lean in to learning about the power of love. He is trying to get our attention. I want you to listen to what I'm going to say in verses 4 and following. And here's the principle he's saying. If we lack love, there's nothing we can do in our spiritual life that impresses God. If we lack love, there's nothing we can do in our spiritual life that impresses God. It's a lesson that the church at Corinth needed to learn. It's one that we need to learn and we need to be reminded of. So Lord willing, what we're going to be doing uh, over the next four weeks is studying verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to be looking at the character of love. And we're going to look at it in some detail, in a practical way so that we can understand what the character of love is. Now, having said everything that we've said this morning, I want to share with you some life response I think we can have based on what we've looked at. So here's the first thing. As we get ready to spend four weeks studying the character of love, I would say, let 1 Corinthians 13 study you, as I let 1 Corinthians 13 study me. See, this is not just about a mental exercise here. This is about, what does this practically look like in my life? What does this practically look like in my relationship with my roommates, with my fellow students, with my parents? 
in our marriage, in our church. So the first thing we can do as we study these verses on the character of love is to let 1 Corinthians 13 study you. I need to let it study me. And you need to let it study you. And then the second thing I would say by way of some life response is to remember love in the New Testament comes in the shape of a cross. God is love. How is that put into flesh for us? Well, we look to Jesus. It begins with the cross. That's why we talk about the cross. We talk about what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. And for those of us who even know him, what is the central message that the cross communicates? What's the central message that someone climbing on the cross for all of the world communicates about love? Ponder that one. Ponder that one. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much again for your word. We thank you for how real it is. We thank you for how practical it is. We look forward, Lord, to you teaching us over the next few weeks. We would pray that you would, through the Holy Spirit, show us where we need to make some adjustments in our relationships with one another inside the church, our relationships inside of our families, inside of our marriages. All of us need to learn because we understand what the spiritual mathematics is all about, and we don't want to be men and women who operate in our life apart from the love that you have provided for us. Father, we know that we need you. We need you in this area. Teach us, we pray, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 